0: Please take out your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That'll be our text this morning. We will be taking a chapter 15 in three parts. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So if you'd make your way there in the Bibles, that would be helpful. Uh, I appreciate Matt's comment about it feeling a little bit like Easter. You know, we often think about Jesus' death. We often think about Jesus' resurrection. We often tie them to those Um, remembrances, but we also need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus' resurrection is probably one of the most crucial events in the history of the world. And so, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, And as he's writing to a gathered church, he wants to remind them of that. He wants to bring it to the forefront. You actually see it written about in chapter 1, and then he's going to write this large section in, in chapter 15. And so we need to be reminded this morning that as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that he's writing to a gathered church. In fact, Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth. That's what it says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Then he calls those people, those gathered in Corinth, he calls them those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those called to be saints. We see that picture of the church of God, the family of God, the believers gathered together to be edified by the word. Beloved, Paul is writing to those who've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, to those who've been brought together into the body of Christ the church to show them that there's more to the gospel than salvation and there's more to following Jesus than salvation. He's calling them to understand, to see that the gospel that saves is the gospel that transforms. And Paul writes that nearly immediately to them in chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul writes, the word of the cross, the gospel, is the power of God for those who are being saved. It is the power of God at work. For those who are being saved, it's an active, present tense. He's at work now. So if you don't understand, if it seems Folly to you, Paul would testify it's because you're not a believer. And, and yet, if it's the power of God that testifies to a, a saving faith in us, that God is at work in us. And in fact, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he prays actually in Ephesians 1, that the church would come to a greater understanding of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, going so far as to add, that it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let's consider what Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to, what he's praying about for the Ephesian church. He's actually asking that they would come to understand the full weight of the power that raised a dead man and gave him life is the same life-enabling, recreating, breath-giving power in you this morning. Like, that's a ton. That's why Paul says, don't don't just know it. I want you to know it increasingly. I want you to know the immeasurable greatness, the enormity of this power that God has placed at work in you. All because of the resurrection. Like, we really need to lean into this more to understand the implications of the resurrection, not just for eternity, but for this life now. That's a big part of why 1 Corinthians 15 exists. And so, as we come to this letter, Paul's pinning this final section, this chapter 15, before his farewell, and Paul's writing about this most important, most crucial life-giving topics, the resurrection. And he's not doing it to prove the resurrection, though this morning he will give some very powerful evidence. We actually find Paul's greater point is to empower the Corinthians to know and to believe that the resurrection is real. To know that Christ's resurrection was real. And that someday their physical bodies would be resurrected. To know that that's real. Why? So that they would come to some greater understanding that you can find real hope for change in this life. We'll find that as we move through the message this morning. It's so that we will see that real hope is possible. And so, beloved, if you're gathered with us together this morning, you're seeking out hope. The most life-giving event we can point to is the resurrection. Consider what Peter writes in the first chapter of his letter, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now listen to this through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Beloved, we've not only been granted salvation in Jesus and hope in Jesus, according to Peter, we've been given a living hope, that our hope is alive, that it's well, that it's strong, that it's active, that it's moving because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so with that, we'll get to chapter 15, starting in verse 1 as Paul starts to write, this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul, well, first we should acknowledge we glanced at these verses a couple of weeks ago, as Paul seeks to remind the church, to remind the Corinthians of the gospel, now, in verses 3 and 4, he's actually going to clarify the gospel. We'll get to that. But we don't want to miss this point here because Paul writes the gospel, the gospel I preach to you. We need to be reminded that Romans 10, 14, Paul writes to the church at Rome. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Like the active word of God being spoken is important. That's why Paul says, I preached it and they received it. They heard it. They believed it. They trusted it. It's not enough just to hear you have to receive it. And now you see them standing in it, that they're holding fast to it. They're living on it in verse two, in which you are being saved. Paul pointing to the continual process of Jesus renewing us day by day. He's pointing to our transformation. That very picture that salvation isn't already and not yet reality, that we've been saved, our souls have been redeemed, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and yet it's a continual process and that will be totally fulfilled when we're glorified with Jesus when he returns. And then Paul includes the exception which we have to look at, we have to consider, we have to acknowledge, because Paul writes, you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And what Paul does for us is he paints a picture for us to see a dichotomy, for for us to see this difference, for us to understand that there is true belief and there is false belief, right? We often can talk about, we can hear some consideration. Did, Did they lose their salvation? Now, what this verse seems to suggest is that there are people who believe in vain. They believe falsely. So you see this dichotomy, and what's the testimony of true belief? That you stand in it. That you hold fast to it. That's what Paul's proclaiming to these Corinthians. I, I preached, you received, you're standing in it, and you're holding fast. That's a picture of a true believer. To understand that it's not enough just to hear the gospel. You have to receive it, believe it, and stand in it. And so then Paul defines the gospel starting in verse 3. This is what Paul writes. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I received... Paul declares now the most important thing, the most important thing he received, he's now going to give them the very thing he was seeking to remind them of, the very thing we need to be constantly reminded of. Verse three, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, Let's pause there, because if your Bible is open, and I do hope that it is, this 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 need to be underlined, even if you're not an underliner, because this is what we need to pick up on. There are five facts that you have to get right to understand the gospel. And he's going to put these before the Corinthians here. There's five things we've got to get right. We've got to see and we need to believe. First, Paul writes, Christ died. Not merely a man, but the Messiah. That's what the word Christ points to. It's not just Jesus, the man Died. It's this picture that the one mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 who would crush the head of the serpent, that he died, that the one mentioned in Isaiah 53, the man who would be despised and rejected, the man of sorrows and grief, the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one, that's the one who died. That it's more than just a man dying for another man, but in fact it was God's chosen one, sent by God who died. And why? Well, that's the second fact. For our sins. Christ died for our sins. Isaiah 53 would go on to say that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those aren't easy verbs. They're hard, painful verbs. Piercing and crushing. For as Romans 6 testifies, the, the wages for sin is death. That you and I, based on our sin, we've earned something. We've earned death. We've earned a penalty. And that penalty has to be satisfied. Such that Hebrews 2 would testify, Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, it's a big word and it testifies that Jesus was that payment. That Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. That's why Romans 4 would testify that he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. It's this picture that Jesus took on our penalty. So it's not just that he died, but that he died in our place. He He died in my place. He took my punishment. And third fact it was in accordance with the scriptures which is to say it's not a farce now we could stop here and point out that historically there have been major heresies that could be linked to each one of these things it wasn't jesus the christ who died it was just a man that's a heresy we don't we don't believe that well jesus didn't die for just my sins he died for well that no he died for our sins it's important he died according to the scriptures. That's important. This was God's plan from the very, very beginning. If you study the Old Testament through the New, you'd see that the scriptures foreshadow it. They foretell it. In Zechariah thirteen seven, God will strike the shepherd and his sheep will scatter. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was led to Led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before shears, he never said a word. Psalm 22:16 says, "My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang is closing in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet." Isaiah 56: I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Psalm 22. 14 and 15, my life is poured out of me like water and my bones are out of joint. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You see forecasted through the whole Old Testament passages that are written 400, 500, 700, a thousand years before Jesus. It's forecasted that he would go to the cross, that he would die. And Jesus knew it. In fact if you read through the gospel of Mark you will see three different times that Jesus tells his disciple long before the week of the passion long before that Jesus would tell his disciples I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die. Like this was the plan from all of eternity. Fourthly our fourth fact he was buried. Beloved, there are those who claim that Jesus didn't die. There are those who say he wasn't crucified. It's worth noting, not only did he die, was he buried, but his mother was there. Mary Magdalene was there. John the disciple was there. Not to mention the many others. We need to keep in mind that Nicodemus was there, a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. We've got a record to testify, overwhelmingly. That Jesus was crucified and he was died. We also need to keep in mind that Roman soldiers were literally professional executioners called to carry out a job. And so it's historical fact that Jesus died based on the testimony. And it's historical fact that he was buried. Which brings us to the fifth fact. That he was raised again in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus rose again. Jesus told his disciples he would die and rise again, and he did. Beloved, we need to understand these five facts that Christ died and he died for our sins and he died according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised because that's the gospel. That's the basis of our hope. That's the basis of our salvation. It's the knowledge of that and the belief of that and the standing in that, that allows us to hold fast in this world. And so having testified to the extraordinary things that's happened, Paul now leans in to give the testimony of the reality of the resurrection. We could point to all those other things in the Gospels. This is where we find the testimony of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15. That after Jesus was resurrected, Paul testifies, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That having died, having been buried, and having been resurrected, he appears to... Peter. Now, likely this account is found in Luke 24. But one thing we need to keep in mind is if you hold a date of 1 Corinthians being written in the mid-50s, which is pretty conservative, it's pretty reasonable, then we need to understand that Peter was alive when Paul wrote this, as were most of the other eyewitnesses. So Paul isn't just appealing to a historical account. He's literally kind of telling the church in Corinth, Hey, go find Peter. He he watched it. He saw him. He can tell you all about it. He's giving them this list of eyewitnesses. And after Peter, the 12th. This perhaps, by the way, can be seen in John 20. You can find a lot of these accounts listed in the Gospels. And then he says in verse 6, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Beloved, this is no mere illusion or trick. You know, generally you take the the testimony of two. You, You generally would hold really strictly to the testimony of three. If three people said, hey, we saw it happen, you'd say, yeah, it must have happened. They're willing to testify to it. And Paul's saying there are 500 people who didn't just see him, but saw him at the same time, saw him at the same place. They all put it together. They can validate each other's story. That's an astonishing number of people. And again, Paul's pointing to the fact that most of them are still alive at that moment. You could find these people. You might be related to some of them. You know, Cousin Frank, I heard he was there. Well, let's ask him next time at a family reunion. That's that's part of what's going on here is Paul's trying to edify the church. He's trying to encourage the church of this reality of the resurrection that the details are still very, very alive in that generation. You could find people who saw Jesus post-resurrection. And if that's not enough, verse 7. And then he appeared to James. And if you're just doing a cursory reading of 1 Corinthians 15, you might wonder, why James? Why does James stick out? And one of the big reasons you need to pick up on James is because if you follow through in the Gospels, you'll actually find that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was an ardent unbeliever during Jesus' entire life. Then, in fact, James showed up on a couple of different occasions claiming his brother was crazy. He tried to remove him. He tried to pull him out of the public eye. And so now you see Jesus, post-death, post-burial, having been resurrected, now appearing to James. Now, something happens in James' life, because by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, James is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Jesus becomes very real to his brother when he watches him die, when he watches him be buried, when he watches him be resurrected. The resurrection must have really changed James' life. It must have really changed his perspective. must have brought him alive. And then Paul gives his own testimony, 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If you don't know Paul's story, you can read the account of it in Acts 9 if it's unfamiliar. But Paul is giving extraordinary proof of Jesus' resurrection, pointing to all these different people, all these different facets, all so that they would see that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just real, but it was verifiably real, that they could trust in it real. Finally, he'll write in 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul brings the resurrection, he brings his understanding of salvation, the His experience of being saved and his experience with Jesus to bear, to preach the gospel, to testify to this resurrection. So why is the resurrection so important for us? Why is it the key that our whole faith hinges on? I'll give you two answers as we finish up this morning. First, and we'll look at this more extensively next week, we need to consider what Paul writes in verse 17. This will be a little bit of his argument for next week. 1 Corinthians 15:17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. For those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul wants to point out a couple of realities. That if Christ has not been resurrected, then our faith is pointless. Why? Because Jesus would be a liar. The Old Testament would be fake, it would be false. Jesus testified himself that he would die and would rise again. If he doesn't rise again, Jesus is a liar. But worse than that, you are still in your sin. We are still in our sin. We would still have a sin problem and a sin penalty that we couldn't afford to pay. So our salvation hinges on this moment on the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. Our faith is solid. And our sin has been taken away because of the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn amongst the dead. He lays the path that there is a resurrection, that you and I will be resurrected someday. We have an eternal hope. And, beloved, that tells us, it testifies to us that the events of 2020 will not matter in the year 10 trillion 74. We won't even remember. We're to be reminded that the resurrection will happen, that this life is very temporary. It can seem like it's everything. We could be tempted to live like this life is everything, as if the next 10 minutes are all that matters. We're to be reminded that this life is but a wisp. That in, the etern- in eternity past or eternity present, this life is but a wisp. The resurrection testifies to eternity. It testifies that there is far more than the 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 110 years that we might live here. The resurrection gives us an eternal hope. And secondly, Romans 6 testifies to us. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome. Chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, Paul's giving them this picture that in baptism you are identified in the death of Jesus Christ. In order that, it's a picture of, now listen carefully, just as Christ. Now it's giving you a a physical picture, a physical reality. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, He's looking back at an event that happened. Just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul's pointing back to this historical event, this Jesus rising from the dead as a sign, as a testimony of the power that you can walk in the newness of life. So it's not just an eternal hope that the resurrection testifies to. It's an earthly hope that it testifies to. That our trials, that our struggles, that our sin, that there's nothing about our lives that Jesus can't redeem, that he can't restore, that he can't rebuild, that if the glory of the Father can reconstitute a dead man and fill his lungs back with air, what more can he not do with our lives? Paul continues, verse 5. For we've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Beloved, the new life that we're to walk in as believers is patterned by his resurrection that once was dead, is now alive. Which is to say that there's no part of our lives Jesus can't completely renew. There's no part of our life, my soul, my past, that is too sick, too far gone, or too dead. Paul will go on to write, we know that our old self was crucified with him, In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we'd be no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, as we step into 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wants to testify to us, not just the reality of the gospel, but to the reality of the resurrection so that the Corinthian church and us, us this morning, That we'd be edified, we'd be encouraged to consider, to be reminded, not just of the resurrection, but of the power of the resurrection. To be reminded of the testimony of the resurrection. That we'd be built up to know this life is not all there is. And we'd be built up to know that you've been given a power to live Differently. You've been given a power to be renewed, restored, rebuilt. You've been given a power to be made alive in a way that allows you to turn your back to sin. Oh, church, if you need hope, Jesus gives us the resurrection and a testimony, not just for this life, but a testimony for eternity, that we belong to him, and that he will save us to the uttermost. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we gather together this morning as a body of people seeking after you. That's why we're here. Father, we're to be reminded that your body is built by the gospel, that it's built by people believing in you, trusting in you, believing in the fact that Christ died for our sins, believing that it was in accordance with the scriptures, believing that you were buried, believing that you were raised. That's the gospel. Those are the facts and the implications are everywhere. That we would understand the resurrection to give us power to live and to give us hope to live. That we have a a living hope to walk day to day. That we have a renewal. That Jesus, you're still at work saving us to the uttermost sanctifying us to completion. And thank you for the sweet gift of eternal life that we could be reminded that this isn't it. And we look forward to these next couple sections to figure out and to, to learn to study more on the resurrection and the resurrection body so that we could be edified, we could be built up in a greater sense of hope. God, we thank you for your word and how you use it to shape us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.